Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a pro cyclist and cycling coach with one of the sweetest mullets out there. Damien Roos, who is a professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest, is also here. And then there's also me, Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast was recorded in a live in front of a live audience but actually right now we're in a transition period and we hope to bring that function back soon um and without further ado today we will be talking about everesting and we will be discussing that with um cyrus that's his topic but uh um damien uh any details on the switch for us or why we decided to do that yeah Clubhouse is a bit of a nightmare and it's actually illegal, I think, to record yeah. people without their permission. So it sort of just became uh, a few hurdles to getting the show sounding exactly how we want it to, to sound. This new platform doesn't mean that people can't jump in in the same way and be an audience and we can bring them on and they can ask questions, but it does allow us to bring guests in uh, with minimal fuss. So certainly keep an ear out for some guests that we're going to bring on and i think it'll make the show uh more interesting and and more informative yeah give it a little bit of a, some a more diverse format um as opposed to just us talking all the time i also like the fact that we can actually see each other now so it it, it, it was weird always kind of having an image of you guys in my head while i was talking definitely took away from the bat the limited bandwidth that i already have in my brain so it's nice to be able to well, cyrus has to sit up <laughs> cyrus can't sit on the couch anymore leon or lay on the couch yeah i don't like it. it means it means i can't lie down on the couch the whole time yeah well i'm still on the couch but i just have to sit somewhat upright <laughs> but yeah i had some listener feedback um uh not to be outdone by cyrus and his dad my dad gave me some feedback on the podcast and he actually was not <laughs> dad's you gotta love him he actually was asking you know the stuff that you talk about it seems very complicated jason do people actually listen to the podcast and it got me thinking and i'm like yeah well dad yeah it's not for everybody and i i think that's the thing is that this is a very niche podcast or and the feedback we've been getting is from the people who like it really really like it and uh, the people that don't like it don't listen so um i don't think we will be watering things down anytime soon so that really i guess it gets me thinking about we all really want to promote this podcast and get it out to as many people as we can that we think would find it valuable and it kind of gets well how do you promote a podcast that is has very niche in its nature so i was thinking about that and you know if you are a listener who's listened to us regularly or a few times and you like what we do then just think of someone that you think when you're a colleague or another cyclist or coaching pal or whoever that you, you think would really be into kind of the nerdier side of cycling performance and uh flick them your favorite episode and 
say, hey, man, give it a listen. Let us know what you think. And um, yeah, I think it would be good to just kind of, if we can spread the word of the podcast kind of organically like that, because like I said, it's very kind of niche listenership that we have, but I, I thoroughly enjoy doing this with you guys. Anyways, uh, that's my little spiel there. And um, yeah, Cyrus, what you got for us? Okay, Everesting. This is something that we've sort of brushed past once or twice in previous podcasts. And instead of throwing it in and just brushing the surface, we decided to dedicate an episode to it because it's definitely something that's getting more traction around the globe. And I know there's probably a few of our listeners who have either completed one or looking to complete one or something that might pop up on their radar in the future. So we thought we'd look into how you might undertake an Everesting and the steps involved to get there. So first off, what is Everesting? This is something invented by the Hells 500 group, which is based in Melbourne in Australia. And from their website, the concept of Everesting is fiendishly simple. Pick any hill anywhere in the world and complete repeats of it in a single activity until you climb 8,848 metres, which I think for our Imperial listeners is 29,029 feet. And this is the equivalent height of Everest. The beauty of this is you can do it anywhere in the world. It is something that is open to anyone to do. You just need a driveway or a bridge if you're in a particularly flat area and you can get it done. But obviously, there's going to be some certain things required in selecting that climb which we'll get to later which is going to make it more difficult or more achievable to reach the height of Everest in one ride but some other rules to pay attention to is has to be done in one ride you can take as many stops as you want just no sleeps so yeah you can't you can't just think okay I'm going to spend this week climbing the height of Everest and sleep each night that won't count and then other things uh it has to be done on the one climb so you can't just sort of sit yourself in a bowl and ride up each side of it to change it up and you also can't get any free vertical gain by basically riding up and down a dipper so you're riding straight down one descent which goes in straight up into another climb which would be a nice way to do it but unfortunately that is not allowed Those are the rules. I've done a bit of Damien-style sleuthing here of the beauty of Everesting is it has to be on Strava to be legitimate. So if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen, which means it's Where are the rules written down? uh, The Hells 500 website. So uh, uh, that or Everesting.cc. So Everesting.cc is the place to go to if you... Would like to see those rules and it can be done on any bike as well as long as it's not an e-bike so it has to be entire human power so there is people who have done fixed gear everestings there is also virtual everestings um which are done on Zwift or whichever platform you may choose to use they fall under a separate category and today we'll mostly be looking at the real world everesting but i uh, will yeah get into the 
effort required. I've looked at a few Strava rides here and luckily I managed, I done, have done this myself seven years ago now, almost to the, well, in two weeks, it will be the seven year Everesting of my seven year anniversary of my own Everesting. And like any good scientist or researcher, I looked back through training peaks and the file is still there. So I was able to look at every little detail of that ride, which I don't think I had done since then. So it was pretty interesting to look at because that was as a 17-year-old and off a pretty low level of training comparative to compared to what I have now. But I think, yeah, sort of an 80 CTL in training peaks there at that time. But here's some stats from that ride. This is an example of an Everesting. So it was 11 and a half hours moving time, 13 and a half elapsed. So I did have quite a few stops, 230 kilometers. So yeah, 8,848 meters in 2,030 kilometers that equates to about an 8% average gradient for the climb that I was doing. Uh, average power without zeros. So when I was doing all of this analysis, I've looked at all of the power for a few different Everestings from other riders I've looked at and taken out the zeros because when we're training for an Everesting or looking at that, we're going to be looking at the power that you're putting out while you're climbing and all of the zeros is going to be while you're descending. So my average power for this ride was 180 something watts, but without the zeros, it's 230. The reason I've done this and the reason I think the power without the zeros in, in many cases, I don't like when people take out zeros because it's obviously uh, in, in races and training, it's an important component to recognize that there's time spent not pedaling and there's also a different physiological response to the average power versus the without zeros or normalized power. But in this case, if I was to go out and train for an effort at 180 watts, it's going to create quite a different response and be quite a different training session to the power that I was actually climbing at, which was 230 watts. Um, so this at that time was about 70% of my FTP. The cadence was 66 RPM average, and that's also taking out zeros. So yeah, that's obviously quite a low cadence, definitely suboptimal. We'll discuss that later. Uh, average heart rate, 150 BPM, 23% of the time I was not pedaling, so zero watts. So that's an important thing to note uh, because that's essentially useless time in terms of if you're aiming for a, a fast Everesting time, you want to minimize the time that you're descending um, and that's going to involve having a straight descent. So my climb there was not the easiest of descents, quite technical, which is definitely something you need to take into account when choosing a climb. Uh, this, the power without zeros equated to 3.37 watts per kilo for the 11 and a half hours. The, there was 7,500 kilojoules of work done. So that's work that actually went into the pedals. 
So if we're converting that to calories for ease, we're going to use a roughly one-to-one ratio. So in terms of actual metabolic energy costs would be around 7,500 calories, which is considerably more than the average daily intake. And TSS, training stress score for that day was 565, which to this date is still by far the biggest training stress score for any ride that I've done. Uh, do you guys have any any questions about that? Uh, yeah, I just take it back a bit. Um, I never realized that this came out of Melbourne in that yep. area. And is that is that that close to where you grew up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yep. out east to me. Out east is all yep. kind of merges together for That's the summer. That's why was early on the trend. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. a pioneer, I think. Well, the fun fact is I was... I can definitely tell you're a hipster by yeah, my mullet. No, I did, so. it. I, did, I did it before. It was cool, the, the Everest, yeah. and I haven't done it since. Um, <laughs> the, back at that time, me and a mate uh, thought, saw that a few people had been doing it. Um, we thought mm-hmm. the Hells 500 were a pretty cool group. They just love going out and riding hills around Melbourne, and then they've sort of branched out across Australia now. But... The at the time we thought right we're going to go for the youngest ever Everesting, which we successfully achieved, but we didn't really think it through because once someone breaks your record, you you can't get it back. <laughs> so I'm gonna have, <laughs> gonna have to wait a while before I go for the other age related record. So you can watch out for me in in sixty years or so going for the oldest ever Everesting. But I think now a ten year old's completed an Everesting, so it's pretty. Big achievement to get that much climbing done, but yeah, to go back to the probably helped. It probably helped that his parents were helicopters. <laughs> yeah, that's the genetics coming back in. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't the genetics, but oh, I was just oh, I was making a pun. Yeah, pun. Um, the Hell's Five Hundred group. Yeah, they. Uh, the history behind it is pretty interesting. So the. I'm not too across the actual first to the top of Everest history, but as I understand George Mallory and Edmund Hillary, there was sort of the debate on who was actually first to the top. But George Mallory's grandson and namesake was the first ever recorded Everesting on a bike. And he did this by doing Mount Donabuang, which is 60 Ks from Melbourne as the crow flies, I think. And he did this to the repeats of this until he reached the height of Everest. And this was, I think, maybe 2010. And then just sort of that kind of, it's a cool story that George Mallory, who was debated to be the actual first man on the top of Everest, um, who was in, I think he was British, should have done my history check before this but um <laughs> yeah his grandson who was australian was the first to do one in australia and now it's blown up across the world so we see professionals doing it alberto contador was the former record holder um and the current record was broken earlier this year so i do have a few other everest things that we can refer to when we're discussing it but i'll i'll give you some stats of the current record so I did some Strava sleuthing there as well. And this is Ronan McLaughlin from Northern Ireland. And he is a former pro, 
uh, obviously quite a good climber in his day and still clearly does a fair bit of riding and knows what he's doing because he has put out a pretty impressive time here. So he did it in half the time it took me to do it. Uh, Six hours, 40 moving time, no stops. That's pretty considerable difference being able to just complete the whole effort without stopping or taking a break. Uh, 125 kilometers. So if you notice the difference there, that's uh, just over half of the distance that I rode to complete it. So that basically just means he's got a much steeper climb, which has allowed him to get the vertical gain much faster. So he, I think his climb was 15% average, which is obviously pretty steep. And there's some serious (laughs) gearing on his bike. So you can, um, if you just look up Ronan McLaughlin Everesting, you'll, you'll find all the cycling tips info on his bike for the effort and it's some pretty crazy mods that he's starting to scrub off as much weight as possible. I think he only had three sprockets on the rear cassette to save weight. And yeah, mm. obviously some pretty crazy ratios, uh, tiny one by front chain ring and yeah, three, three sprockets there. Um, and yeah, some, some pretty crazy other mods done to get the weight right down. So you can, um, see all of that info but that has helped him get that time and the other thing that obviously helped him other than just the bike is the fact he was able to ride at 324 watts average for the time that he was moving the time that he was climbing so that's again without oh, a piece of cake yeah again without the zeros so this for him from my calculations was 89 percent of ftp so Noticeably, I was climbing at 70% of FTP. I've got a few other Everestings I've looked at here from other riders I've worked with previously, and they were between the 70 and 80% FTP mark, but they're obviously riding for 11, 12, 13 hours, whereas Ronan's Mm -hmm. riding for a much shorter time. So that's something that you would look at if you're planning on an Everesting, even though you might not have the goal of setting any world records. the less time that you can ride for is going to, that's going to be the goal for most people because most people don't want to be out there for 18 hours if they can knock it over in 12. So that's going to be mm-hmm. the goal with preparing for this Everesting. Uh, I'd imagine his his percent of FTP is probably higher because he's going for a world record as well. Yeah, exactly. Right. And he's purely, he's going to be purely performance all, all about performance, all about going fast, whereas others may be holding a little a little more back to make sure that they get through it or just to not be in so much pain because holding 90% of FTP for over six hours is, is going to be a pretty difficult uh, task. And his average heart rate, 155 BPM, which looking at his other heart rate data, this is still mostly in zone three on the five zone heart rate model. So it's not like it's the same heart rate he would be holding for a, a short time trial or a, an all-out effort. It's it's a very steady effort. He is not working maximally. That's something to notice, uh, something to note there. 19% of the time he was not pedaling. So that's... Did, did you get to see the graph of the 
of the um, heart rate. Yep. So the graph of the heart rate was interesting. It started at around 160 for the first hour and then progressively dropped throughout the effort and was around low 150s by the last. So it was getting lower with more fatigue, but power also dropped a little bit. So it was relatively well correlated to power throughout the effort. Um, Mm. But important to note because you would expect in lesser trained athletes to see cardiac drift um, which is as you are doing a long sustained effort sort of important to note that this is a different kind of sustained effort because you do have the stop and his climb was around four minutes long so he's every four minutes stopping for a minute to ride back down so that in that stop time he there was 19 percent of the ride he was not pedaling so obviously the the more time you can get that down uh the more time you can spend climbing and getting that vertical gain uh Mm -hmm. 4.5 watts per kilo average so yeah for that for six hours 40 is is pretty damn impressive to be able to hold that and uh kilojoule output of 6500 so he's averaging nearly around a thousand kilojoules per hour mark and important to note that to get that amount of food in while you're riding at that intensity is going to be a pretty difficult task. So any questions on the world record holder? No, um, looks like good effort. (laughs) Good on him. Um, That was surprising that, you know, six hours, 40 minutes, that's pretty good. Um, But I wonder, you know, as it gets more popular, how many more people will start shooting um, for those records? Yeah. And then the other thing I've kind of thought about with the, the Eversting is with the with the modeling and that type of stuff, and maybe this is something that's already happening, is are we going to figure out where the best hill is on Earth? Yeah. And people will just start going to it. Yeah. Well, his, and for whatever reason that is. Yeah. His, his hill that he's chosen, obviously super steep, dead straight, um, so, which is really good for a descent. But it's, it's quite short. Uh, it's only for one kilometer. Obviously, it's hard to find a hill that is dead straight for the descent and that steep and longer than a kilometer in length because, yeah, you're just going to there's there's not that many roads in the world that are, are built like that but yeah it's important to note that if it's one kilometer in length that's a lot of turning time at the top and the bottom and that's not useful time in terms of climbing so ideally i think you would still have a longer climb it's obviously going to depend on personal preference as well because some people may like the idea of getting that break every four minutes um others my personal climb that I was doing it on was four kilometers long and it was taking me around between 15 and 18 minutes per lap. So I was getting a longer break on each descent after that, but it was a longer climb as well without any any chill time on the downhill. So some of that's going to come into to personal preference as well. And the steepness of the climb, you know, Damien kind of gave a made a noise there um we were talking about how steep 
the world record uh, holding this uh, descent is or ascent. Um, but I was thinking one of the advantages of that would be the the amount of speed that you'd be able to carry down the hill, and which would mean that descents would potentially be um, so you'd have less time for the amount of time that you're climbing. Yeah, but you bring up a good point about the time it takes for it to turn. Yeah, and then it also gets into. Um, I would be curious about it. the brakes. You know, yeah, using exactly a set of disc brakes. Yeah, because if, the quicker you slow down, you know, you hold your speed, slow down really quickly. Yeah, and then turn. Yeah, that's going to make it quicker event as well. Yep, exactly. And that's yeah. As we so we'll move on to preparation now. And the first the first thing in preparing for the Everesting is choosing your climb. Uh, I would say to do that before you do anything else. And yeah, some things I've got listed here is the gradient. So ideally steeper is going to be better, but to a degree. So you have to ensure that you have the gearing to get up there first. So his cadence was still 66 RPM, which is quite low. And for most riders, that's not going to be optimal, but He's riding up and down a 15% gradient. It's going to be pretty hard to find any gearing that is going to be able to maintain a high cadence on that. And I think, yeah, if you if you get a club rider that isn't at that level of fitness and say, okay, just just grab some small gears and and ride up and down a crazy steep climb, they also may not actually have the wattage required to keep moving so there becomes a point where it's if you're zigzagging across the road anyway just to get up it then you may as well be doing a shallower gradient so if Mm -hmm. because if you're yeah if you're posting letters on the climb you're essentially flattening out the gradient anyway you're better off choosing a 10 percent climb rather than a 15 percent climb or or something even i think the um the, the personal physiology of a rider plays into the the actual gradient you would be choosing so yeah you would have a preference where you know you perform well yep. so if you're a bigger rider you'd probably want to come down a little bit yeah um and then yeah if you're smaller you could handle more potentially but then 15 percent really is a lot like yep. it would be really working you over to get up there yeah. and that's fifth that's 15 percent average too um, yeah, and that was one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, when you hear 50% for, for a hill, you, you would think of like this ramp, yep. right? Um, but that's not how build, hills are built. You could have a hill that would have a steep part in it, yep. which depending on your fitness might spike your effort into something that would be, I don't want to say anaerobic, but something that would, yeah. you know, spike a a, or in have a cause an acute increase in carbohydrate consumption yeah and if you do that over and over and over again yep um then that could be a problem and that's as you get more and more fatigued one thing i noticed in the four everestings i analyzed here is the time spent over ftp was the highest of any of the four was 92 seconds so all of these efforts, uh, sub FTP, uh, like we're, we're still using FTP for our modeling here. Um, mm, obviously, yeah, if you, like cr- critical power would be a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but like how, how, you know, that's 
going to be tougher with less people using it. Yeah, right? so we're we're using FTP for this discussion because everyone's familiar what it is, with what it is, and most people would have that their own number in their head of of what would be required for that. But you did, yeah. Your point, Damien, is interesting because one writer that analyzed his data, he was a little heavier um, than myself and Ronan. So he's around 10 kilos heavier. He did choose a lower gradient. And so his ride ended up being 308 kilometers. And he's actually got really similar um, watts per kilo to another rider who's chosen the higher gradient. And it took him an extra hour and a bit. So obviously there's going to be a lot of bike differences um, that come into play and also descending time and this kind of stuff. But yeah, essentially it is it is going to depend on the rider and obviously the rider ability to what gradient you choose there. But in general terms, the higher the better. So the higher you can yeah. get through yeah, basically. depending on all of these factors is going to be the better, yeah. the shorter time. Yeah. Because yeah, it may be easy to think I I like climbing it at a four percent gradient. If you are riding at a four percent gradient, you're going to have to do a four hundred and sixty kilometer ride, and the losses there from a, a physics perspective, the losses in energy that you're putting into the bike, so much of that is going to come through drag through the air because you're riding so much further. Um, Whereas ideally, we just want all of that energy spent by your body into, we want all of that energy into going straight up, fighting against gravity. So fighting gravity. That's that's the idea. Another important thing, a few things I put in with the climb choice is scenery, which a lot of people might overlook this, but it is a mental battle. You're going to be out there, most people, for over 10 hours. And if you're riding up and down a concrete road in an industrial estate, that might not be the most motivating thing. If you have a nice area where you can actually actually look out at a nice view, then that might be something that's going to actually make it a mentally easier challenge. And for the majority of people, they're completing, can, trying to just complete this is the goal. So if you can enjoy some of it a little more by having something nice to look at, that may actually be a significant factor. And then, yeah, and then you, you want to consider safety and traffic as well. Yeah, those, those especially. So, uh, boomer comment, but yeah, 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 and safety of the descent, particularly like any any kind of gravel or obstructions or or potholes, you're going to be doing that descent many many times. So. Uh, you you'd really want to be trying to find something that doesn't have too many tricky turns and is a nice smooth surface because the surface as well is going to be something where you're going to be losing losing energy basically in from the system uh, into riding across bumps. If you can have a smooth surface with a straight road, that's going to be ideal. Was it um, Emma Pooley that did it on a mountain bike? Yep. So yeah, it's completely fine to do it on a mountain bike, and you do see a lot of people off road though. I think yeah, there's a lot of off road Everestings. There's there's separate records for those as well. And I've, did she do that in Europe or in Perth? Uh, I'm not sure actually. I think it was in mm. Europe. Um, okay. She yeah. Uh, She's in Switzerland, I think. Yeah. Well, she would come to Perth every summer to train. Yeah, it was quite... Especially in the beginning of my PhD, I would see her around here all the time. 
Um, but I haven't seen her in a while though. Yeah, so. it's quite recently that she did it. But important to yeah, to plan around that if you're gonna do an off-road Everesting, then you need to be fully confident that you can handle your bike after being on it for 10 hours and bring being pretty cooked because that's going to be the most important thing is actually staying upright. Yeah. And then another thing to take into account is the the time of year that you're going to do it. So the climate and the so the time of year is also important for the day length. So ideally you don't want to be in the dark for too much of this. So if you're going to do it in the middle of winter anywhere that's far from the equator you're going to have a short day to try and get this whereas if you can do it if you if you know that you're going to be hitting around that 16 hour mark i'd be looking around the the summer solstice wherever you are to try and maximize the amount of time that you're riding in daylight both for safety and for morale if you can yeah and i reckon you'd want to start it if you're worried about how daylight I reckon it'd probably be better to start in the dark and try to finish in the light yeah. as opposed to start in the light and finish in the dark. Yeah, I have. Just from fatigue and all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And I've there. seen that strategy used a fair bit. The thing to note with that strategy is sleep deprivation as well. If you are either just starting at, at midnight after staying up, which I've seen people go with that mm-hmm. strategy or waking up at three yeah. to start it, then that's going to affect yeah, your performance that doesn't sound as well. Ideal. Yeah. So yeah. it is, I'd just be maximizing daylight time. And basically there's no, there's no one way around most of these things. These are just considerations to take into account and, mm-hmm. and just reminders to, to plan for these things. Cause a lot of people, we will be highlighting things that they just think oh, I would have never thought about this when I was planning my own. Well, you've got wind direction down here. Yeah. I've got to say that if I was planning this, I'd be using my wind sock, yep. which is something I've been delving into a bit lately. Yeah. You should probably explain what that is, right? Because it's software. my wind sock. What about my wind sock, Damien? Why aren't you using mine? I have one too. Well, my wind sock is better. <laughs> is it myosock.com? <laughs> uh, yes. And it's a software that you put in a course of any type and it will give you a map. And then you, as you're moving along the actual route, it will give you a graphic of where the wind is, yeah. the strength of the wind and the direction. Yeah. And it's awesome yeah. because it just visually makes it really easy to see where the trouble areas are. Not only do they have sort of a heat map version, but they have like a rider and then some like just arrows and colors and things. Yeah. Hmm. So it gives you a really nice. good visual of where the wind is. It can give you historical data. It can potentially do it in the future for any days that you are looking at doing it to, to try and figure out which would be the best exact day to do it on. So yeah. that would be something I would definitely be looking at. Definitely. And I think I was quite lucky when I did it, had a roaring tailwind for the climb and the climb mm, that I was doing yep. it on is the important thing to note here is a lot of the time the wind does behave differently around mountains as well. So if you're doing it in an actual mountain area, the climb I was doing, it was essentially up a valley between two ridges and we just had this big wind tunnel pushing us up the hill each time. And that was more luck than actual planning. We were both at school at the time, so we just had to do it on a Sunday and that Sunday happened mm-hmm. to have a big tailwind. But that's what you want to be aiming for, a big tailwind on the climb because on the descent, it's going to be negligible. Um, you don't really mind having a headwind for that and it's also 
important to note that you're only spending around a fifth of the time on the descent, whereas the majority of the time you're climbing. If you've got that tailwind giving you a little push, then that's going to be pretty mm. beneficial for morale oh, as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one thing that's very obvious, but we should point out is the difference between Everesting and an Ironman or, or other a big race or something like that is the athlete gets to set the schedule. Yeah. And, and like, obviously I, I'm going to think about the the weather and that type of thing. So, yep. and so if it comes down to the athlete and I would imagine it's going to be advantageous to have a crew yeah, or some kind of crew. Yeah. So then how flexible the athlete's schedule is and the crew's schedule is. Yeah. And, you know, I could see in Perth here where you would have, um, you know, the longer days you could have it can get really hot yeah, on those days. Definitely. So you wouldn't want to go out and do it on a really hot day. So no. you definitely want to try to have, if you can have some flexibility in your schedule uh, and your, um, and uh, in, in maybe your cruise schedule. Yeah. And that gets into tapering and yeah. stuff like that. And we'll, and we'll get to that, the, that as well. But yeah, it's an important thing to note because we don't get that in cycling much where it, it happens in other sports where you have sort of record attempts or this kind of thing where you have Mm -hmm. to set aside a week and be ready to go on any day that the conditions are right. We see it with track riders Mm -hmm. going for hour records and I always look at it and think, geez, that must be so strange because I always know, for example, I'm racing in this race tomorrow, uh, a UCI race, and I've known that for the last two weeks and had my training planned around that. Whereas if it was, oh, this race could be tomorrow, but if the weather's better on Monday, we'll do it on Monday instead. Like it's a really strange phenomenon for a cyclist to have that. So it can be something that's that's fun to to do to say, right, I'm gonna be ready for this week that oh my training's done and I I have to be good to go on whichever day the weather's good. Do you think we'd ever see mass start Everesting? I've, there has been group Everestings, like um, done with with clubs before I've seen, but the, the thing that I, from personal experience as well, is it's great to have this idea of riding up and completing it together, but like 12 hours is a long time. And with anybody. Yeah. With anyone. Yeah. So (laughs) I I started with my mate and after we'll do a 12 hour podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I started with my mate and after about three hours, we both just mutually agreed, look, let's just ride by ourselves. And then like yeah. we were <laughs> we were lucky a few other friends did come out to, to support us and ride with us so you get different mm-hmm. company. But yeah, I think yeah. that's an important thing to, to notice here yeah, when you have the, the company. Sometimes oh, yeah. it's just good to to have a little change during that ride as well. I do mm-hmm. think a race maybe it goes against the spirit of the whole thing because uh, I've never seen a race actually up Everest. But um, it would be interesting to test the limits and possibly we would see faster times then. Yeah, yeah, it would be super interesting. Also super dangerous <laughs> just having mm-hmm. riders flying down the descent as others are climbing it. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have 20 hour, 24 hour mountain biking. So, yeah. you know, like, yeah. If they set it up like a slalom course where the old slalom courses used to have two tracks in them. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you could somehow set it up where the riders had to maintain their lane, yeah, it might be a little bit. But of course, this is us just leaning the conversation in the direction we're all comfortable with. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of the Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. And with that, let's get back into it. We'll move on from the climb choice. And uh, I was going to say, going. too, yep. there's um, I probably consider altitude as well. Yeah. Because you can have hills at altitude and it's like, well. Yep. Um, and then okay. also, yeah. You- would you want to do this at Would you prefer to do this at sea level though right yeah. or closer to sea level yeah and it's an interesting one whether the because the climbing time is so slow whether the lower drag at altitude would be any benefit obviously you descend a bit faster nah. then but i would the doubt loss it in VO2 max. yeah exactly mm-hmm. um but yeah Im- important things to take into account especially if you're living in boulder whether you would end up having to drive to drive down a bit lower um mm-hmm. so you've selected your climb and you are ready to start training so basically from the analysis riders are spending the majority of the time between 70 and 90 percent of ftp and this is going to just depend on your level of fitness and endurance and how long you spend out there if you're out there for 18 hours it's going to be pretty hard to hold 90 percent of your ftp but we're looking at here there's, there's two ways you can get faster if you're looking at the effort that's required. You can either increase your FTP or increase the percentage of your FTP that you can ride at for the sustained period. So the, in, the increase in the FTP, we've dedicated a whole podcast to this already and this is essentially what all of us are trying to do as coaches and what any coaches is trying to do ideally we'd all like to be able to increase our ftp so we won't spend this whole podcast talking about how to do that and then likewise the ability to exercise at a high percentage of ftp is another thing that we're all sort of working on with any endurance focused training blocks or sessions so do you guys have any particular things that would be relevant to to just Everesting? Obviously, don't want to spend this whole podcast talking about how to become a faster cyclist because that's what the whole show. The thing is. that I could think that I was thinking about when seeing um, Ronan McLaughlin's Everesting effort and his average power of four point five watts per kilogram, I've actually seen this type of figure as a fat max. Yep. After testing. Yep. So potentially a lot of this effort, he was doing like the minimal glucose needed to get through this effort, yeah. which of course is very important yeah. for preserving and, that's, and fueling. And that's something, yeah, that's really important because if you look at the, the calorie expenditure, the energy expenditure during these efforts it is massive Like, and you, you cannot be relying entirely on carbs to be able to do that. So that's going to be, and that's something I'd thought about with the training is you're going to be trying to 
to make your athlete or if you're training for this yourself, you want to become very well fat adapted so that you can utilize fats, particularly if you're going to, if you know you're going to be above that 12 hour mark where you're just out there the whole day, you, you can't rely on carbohydrate for that, that period of time. And it's something we see with ultra endurance events and something that you can see when you're testing these athletes is the, ability to utilize fats is really high in these athletes so that's something you would be looking to improve in your training yeah so yeah I, exactly I, right. actually yep. i'm glad you brought that up damien because i was actually kind of thinking about it while i was going through some of this literature and i was like oh, i wonder I wonder how this sits with fat max and then i just the, the thought just kind of drifted away um and yeah so I'm, that's interesting that you bring that bring that yeah. up and it's also important important to this is where it's going to be important to work with a coach because or someone that knows what they're they're talking about because it's going to depend entirely on the athlete i'd love to come to this training segment of how to prepare for an everesting and be able to just give people their three points and send them off but it's going to completely depend on the athlete if i'm training you jason to do an everesting it's going to be completely different to if I was training Damien to do an Everesting now, or if I was training my dad to do an Everesting now, like as, as with training for anything, it's going to depend on so many factors, training age, just base fitness already. And that's going to be where it's just going to be beneficial to work with a coach and have that program because it's going to be specific to each rider and specific to the kind of time that they're looking to do i mean there's there's going to be there's going to be some underlying similarities because all those people you described are humans yep exactly so um (laughs) yeah um, but yeah yeah there's gonna we're essentially looking to have similar adaptations regardless of the athlete but how you get there is going to be different for each athlete the other thing with training that I was really having a good think about and had to call on, on Jason for some papers here is whether you need to train on steep climbs to be good at steep climbs. And this gradient in this gradient and training sort of link could be an episode in itself as well. But we will touch on it here because there is this opinion that you to get better at climbing you should train on climbs and it is intuitive and uh you would rarely see grand tour riders doing their training on a velodrome or on on the flat uh if they can help it they can they would like to go to hilly areas but the there isn't as much research as you might think into this and the majority yep. of research is centered around efficiency on these climbs so this is just uh, essentially just measuring the output um, that's going into the pedals relative to the work that's actually being done within the body so ideally you'd like to be more efficient so all of the power the maximum amount of power into the pedals for the work that's actually being done by the athlete so what the research has shown here and jason might have some some more insight on this is that as the gradient is increased, the efficiency tends to decrease. So the steeper the climb, you will generally see a drop in efficiency and this is going to be a drop in power output for the same effort from the rider. So this is something that 
and this study notes that it remains to be shown whether this can be altered in response to a specific training intervention but you would think that this is something that you would have to target by actually training at this specific gradient that you're going to be completing the Everesting at. Jason, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so the whole you need to train in the hills to be better in the hills, like most things, I, I look at it, it's, it's very, it seems very nuanced and it almost takes away from some of the, some of the most obvious things, um, you know, South of Wisconsin is Illinois and it's super flat, right? And if a pro rider came out of Illinois and hadn't ridden hills hardly at all his whole life, but had a six watts per kilogram yeah. functional threshold power, and then you have some person that is doesn't have that watts per kg, but is rides hills all the time, guess who I'm putting my money on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so the the... the the riding hills to get better at hills. Um, okay, cool. We can we can go down that path, but like it, it shouldn't. The the watts per kg thing, yeah, should be pretty in your face. Does a hill inflate watts per kilogram potentially? What do you, what do you mean? Um, because I mean, its resistance it, is pushing harder. Like you do a test or whatever on a hill, potentially, on average, you, you're going to see a better result. What I understand about riding hills is there is kind of a decoupling there um i think it's similar to what happens when uh you when you ride with low cadences I'm not exactly sure yeah that's what this study is this, showing it's similar yeah effect. yeah so this is something that i would like to dig into a little bit more the way i would lay it out for an athlete because i have had someone approach me about just being able to climb hills better so i would kind of laid out for them is, well, we definitely don't want to look at your watts per kg, right? Yeah. So, cause people get kind of stuck in this idea. I need to ride hills in order to get better in hills. And then for me, I kind of look at, well, if this is the case, then where's the mechanism? And I look at cellular stuff cause I understand cellular stuff best cause that's where my background is in. So I'm thinking about, well, what, what would be going on at the actin myosin chain the bridges and things like that, that could be potentially be trained differently when you have a force that's pushing back on them. Right. The, um, but then there's also a kind of more biomechanical things and, you know, ligaments, tendons, connective tissues that might be slightly changing with that greater force, uh, getting pushed back on them from doing climbing. Uh, maybe that affects efficiency and economy. Um, and you know, I have, I'm kind of at a loss. If someone has some papers out there that they want to forward along, that would kind of be point me in the right direction. I'd, I'd love to see it. Um, just one of those things that I have to you know, get into a little bit more. But I remember uh, with the hill climbing thing, I was hanging out uh, at my house one time here, and I was with Paulo Manespa, um, and we were watching... I won't be too too specific, but we were watching a video where they were interviewing a sports scientist who was an expert in uh, in cycling performance, very well known. And he started talking about climbing and performance and climbs. And I remember Paulo and I like rewinded the video multiple times to listen to his explanation for why it was different. And 
we were just looking at each other like, are we dumb or are we not totally understanding this or is this getting explained right? So when you get past the whole watts per kig thing, which is very easy to understand, for me, there is a little bit more of a kind of question around that. And I, I think the best way to kind of explain it is, okay, so imagine that you have two people that are matched in terms of watts per kig, or like twins or something like that. And one's been riding hills more than the other. And all right, well, let's say that the person that's been riding hills is better at climbing the hills. Is it because of a physiological adaptation or they've just gained more experience from riding hills and now they're better at pacing hills? Yeah. Right? And that's something um, I and, would, Or is a multifactorial thing. That's and something. So, you, sorry. <laughs> that's something I noted yeah, yeah. when I um, was doing this. I couldn't find that much research saying that it was going to, you needed to ride steep hills to be better at riding them. And I thought, oh, would I prescribe this? And I thought, yeah, I still would because. If they're familiar with riding this gradient, that's going to make them more comfortable on the day that they're completing the Everesting rather than just this, oh, what's this? Suddenly I'm sitting slightly mm -hmm. different on the saddle. Suddenly there's this force pushing back on the pedals as I'm trying to push through. Suddenly there's this dead spot at the top of the pedal because I'm riding up a 12% hill when I've been doing my efforts for this on the flat. So these kind of factors, even though I struggled to find any performance gain to this kind of training, just the purely mental aspect and just the conditioning aspect, I would still be prescribing the a lot of the training for my athlete in preparing for an Everesting, I would be getting them to ride on similar gradients. Yeah, it's one of those things where the more I read about things and the more cautious I become about just following the the old hat traditional ways of of approaching things because things that might look like it's just common sense then i'm like well okay well it, yes i think you're absolutely right cyrus i have this in my notes that i would definitely be looking at having some kind of familiarization of the everesting yeah you know maybe we're going to do it for like five hours or three or four hours or something like that and the and and would that be necessarily for physiological gains i don't know like maybe um you know we would try it once and see how if there was any kind of response or what the, how the athlete felt during it but the other thing is just like it's such a different thing yeah. to do and you could find out like your hands get tired or you're rubbing on the seat a weird way and it's that's actually probably as valuable yeah. to figure out you know Things like that that you might not think or realize during normal yep. rides. And so, or even, yeah, your knee blowing up or something with the extra load. Yeah. So, the advantage to me is more than just a physiological adaptation or a, a training thing yep. in a purely physical sense. It also has to do with these learning and pacing and understanding things and putting yourself in the position of actually doing it and see what you learn because you it's one of those things you do it because you don't know what you're going to learn yeah yep you don't know what you don't know yep and and so i i definitely and but it, it's also gets into the same where we don't necessarily understand this as much as cyclists but one of the things if you ask um someone that's doing iron man 
you know, well, why wouldn't you just do an Ironman to make sure you can do the Ironman? There's nothing that says you can't do, just go out and do an Ironman one day, yeah. right? But you would destroy yourself. Exactly. Right. And so, so when the, you get into, yeah. when you start to race events that are so long that to go out and practice them, that you would destroy yourself. Yeah. It gets into these sticky areas of, well, how do you know that you're going to be able to finish it? Yeah. You know, like what is enough for you to do to, to realize that you're going to finish it? And I mean, and there's yeah, I'm inter- yeah, there's a ahead. risk there. That's that's something I had on here. Whether mm-hmm. in training I would include trial runs or familiarization, because obviously it needs to be close enough that it's valuable, that it's worth doing. So you could, if you have to do, you know, you have to do a hundred repeats of this climb to reach Everest. There's not much point going out and doing three repeats. That's not going to be that. That's it's not going to give you much insight into what the effort's going to be like. But that being said, you wouldn't tell someone, okay, go out and do 90 repeats, do 90% of an Everesting, and then you know you can do the extra bit because if you're that close, you may as well finish it off. So like, then it gets to the point of, okay, where where do you stop? Because it can be, you could say, okay, half is a good point. And I know a lot of people do a half Everesting before going for the full one, but there's the risk of the psychological effects there of, wow, that was crazy hard. That was the hardest ride I've ever done. There's no way I could do that twice. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go in cold Turkey and you're already halfway through and you think, well, I've committed this far, I'm going to absolutely destroy myself and finish the whole thing. But that's the only time you're doing the effort, then that may be a better approach. So I think as a coach or as an athlete preparing for this, it's going to be again, athlete specific and sort of just knowing the psyche surrounding that athlete. Is this something that's going to benefit them or am I better off just leaving it purely for the event for the target day? Yeah. Well, if they do half and they don't think it's possible, then they, you know, hopefully they train more and come back and try again. Yeah. And and hopefully most athletes would have that mentality. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're going to do an Everest, you're going to have to have a certain amount of grit. Yeah, right? and <laughs> so. a lot of yeah, a lot of the Everesting. And that's why I tell most people that uh, ask me about it, of it and say, oh, what, what do you think about Everesting? Could I do it? Like, could I finish it? And my response is always, you could do it tomorrow, uh, providing that you don't get injured or nothing goes wrong during the Everesting like it's purely mental if it gets harder you just ride slower um so like the it's it's a mental game it could because there's there's no time limit it's not like you have to be under 24 hours as long as you are okay with being awake for a long time you can ride as slow as as slow as you like and get it done but for the majority of people they're not going to enjoy riding a bike for 30 hours and Mm-hmm. and suffering they want to be able to get it done in a reasonable time frame where they're riding in the daylight and they're still completely in con- control of their own mind so mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what we're looking at with the the preparing for the everesting um so some other things to note here and these are, are relatively common sense so we'll fire through them pretty quickly but important things to to make sure you're thinking about weight management. So definitely put management rather than loss because a lot of people instantly think, I need to lose weight for it. You need to actually assess whether the athlete has weight to lose or whether it's going to be beneficial for them and also what time frame you're looking at. If they're saying, I want to do an Everesting in three weeks, 
and you're trying to cram some last-minute training in, it might not be beneficial to be also looking at losing weight in that time. If someone says, by this time next year, I want to do an Everesting, then you've got some good time to look at, all right, we're going to try and shed some kegs, help that watts per kilo equation, and also be looking at the, the training alongside that as well. Speaking of shedding watts per keg or shedding shedding the kilograms, yep. in terms of hill selection, what about toilets? Yeah, that's going to be important for... Yeah, something that probably never comes yeah, up in this conversation. I, I was like, what well, what happens if you got to... I hadn't thought about that at all, actually. Well, yeah, personal experience, never had to... Because then you're riding off to use a toilet. Yeah, and that's something that'll, something that'll come in with nutrition as well. But yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's important as well. Um, and yeah, that, you, you might have saved a few people's days there, Jason, by <laughs> that one. I said shave watts per kick. I meant uh, increase your watts per kick because basically every yeah. time I'm at a race and I come out of the porta potty, I make a joke. <laughs> I just increase my watts per kick. Yeah, or, Some, yeah. or decrease. That, you could ex- decrease definitely your, expect that out of me. Decrease your kilograms per watt as well. That's the other way to do it. Um, and then you need to also be. Uh, looking at how you would taper for this event and also combining a a carb load with that taper. So the thing with the taper is you have to be a bit flexible with it because you might end up changing the day due to weather uh, relatively late Mm -hmm. in the planning phase. But with this taper, I'm not usually a fan of a big taper for bike races or cycling events, but in this case, there's not too much of a need to be primed and ready because there's because there's we've ha- we have had the primers and openers episode so you can refer to that if you want to see what we're talking about there but in this case, leg openers yeah yeah you, you don't have to to worry about opening your legs before before the Ever- <laughs> before the Everesting um, because it is all below FTP and it's such a long effort. If you if you feel like you're not quite ready to go at the start, then it, it doesn't really matter because you're you're not at that yeah, yeah, you're not jumping out of the box and having to go straight away. Um, you know, if I felt like I've a little flat, even if I was doing an efforting, I might do I, I could still see myself doing a three minute effort the day before. Yeah. And just if if it was my routine. Yeah. I, you know, a three three minute effort isn't gonna burn up a bunch a bunch of carbs. Yeah. Uh yeah. And, but yeah, the carb loading, um, and I was just checking into some nutrition stuff on this. Yeah, and you're going to have a good idea about the, the, the practice run should also be looking at calorie consumption and how much food you're going to eat and how good you are about eating and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. And then the carb load could be maybe like three days prior to this. So that could, if, it's, if it's flexible, that's going to be tough too because if you're carb loading yeah. for three days coming into yep. an event and you don't do it, well, now you've got all that carb yeah. that might be turning into fat on you yeah um and that's another thing so that's another tricky thing about having a f- event that you get to decide when you do yeah. right and it's it's something you would take into account that some people might say look the weather isn't perfect today but i would prefer to to know that i can control all the things in the preparation so and that would be a factor that some athletes would take into account but yeah the main takeaway there is you want to make sure, make sure those glycogen stores are maximized before you undertake this event because then it's 
yeah, you you just gonna need need everything you've got because it's such a long and energy consuming event to undertake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. um, I was yeah. gonna say one one last thing that was on on my mind when I was thinking about this, and I and I saw you, yeah, oh, you did put your the food that you consumed on the day yep. that you did it. Um, I see you have some donuts down there. Yeah, that's good. Because um, <laughs> I I was at ACS. Um, uh, a few years back, and it was in a poster room. They had all this collection of posters, and I think the theme was like ultra endurance. Yep. And so the group that was in the room walked around to all the different posters, and the people who had the pre- posters presented it. And one of the studies looked at what people were eating during like ultra endurance events and ultra marathon type things. Yeah. And basically, gastro distress that followed. Yeah. And one of the things, the finding that they had was people who were eating real food at some point, like consuming a piece of pizza or something like that, they didn't see any performance differences between the groups, but they did see people who ate the um, the, the, the real food, basically, um, were having less less gastro stress. Yeah. And so I think this is kind of important to point out for cyclists that you know might be doing that first long event whether it's peaks challenge or everesting or something like this that you know it's it's not totally weird to have that pb and j in your back pocket yeah and that's something you you know this thing called a heat sink you know this idea from pro cycling Mm. where for longer events uh in the musette there'll be Uh, like a croissant or something that doesn't Mm -hmm. kind of make sense Mm-hmm. But it, but it is this, this fueling from a fat source that's a slower mm-hmm. release yeah. mm-hmm. when you have uh, longer events and things and and yeah, donuts are, I guess are one example. Yeah, well, this that nutrition that I've got listed there. So I'll read it out now. This was just by chance that uh, as I was trying to find this this ride of mine on on Strava, I had listed all of the stuff that we ate but the, there was very little planning into this it doesn't look too bad now looking at it in hindsight but i think <laughs> i would do it a bit differently if i was to do it again or recommend it to another athlete but i had i'd recommend a piece of lasagna yeah i had um two kilograms of bananas 500 grams of sultanas six donuts four cans of coke and 15 bottles of water and I sort of looked at that mm. and thought, no, that must be electrolyte. And then I was thinking, I don't think 17-year-old me would have even been across the electrolyte balance stuff. So I think it, it seems all pretty natural. Yeah, I think it was just what... Except for the Coke, of course. I think it's just whatever mm. we could find at uh, Audi the night before. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's... Surprise there's no fruitcake in there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm also surprised about that. But I must have been, yeah, on a, on a more natural... Uh, except the donuts yeah but uh yeah <laughs> i'm entirely unimpressed with australia's donuts i'm just gonna say as as yeah. as an american assess, <laughs> judging your donuts here yeah well if, i don't even know how that powered you anywhere <laughs> yeah well the i did the calculations and that was 5300 calories so in yeah kilojoules we're looking at 2100 uh 21000 sorry so that is basically, I'm surprised that I didn't get any gastro upset there because that's some pretty crazy intake 
Um, and I think a lot of people, if they're not trained with consuming large amounts of carbohydrate, they would end up struggling to digest that properly. So that's something that you need to be planning out with your preparation as well in just taking in those high carbohydrate volumes. And then also, yeah, planning how much real food you're going to have and making sure that whatever food you're taking in on the day is going to be something you can digest as well. It's an interesting side note here that the thing that is driving carb intake in endurance uh, sports at the moment is the studies in ultra. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So if you go looking for anything yep. with uh, you know up, up to the sort of 120 grams an hour. Yeah, that are being quoted now, a lot of this stuff is is being driven from ultra. So yeah. it's not just this high performance thing where it's four or five hours. Yeah. It is 12 hours. And that's where I'd be, yeah, directing people to specifically look in on the nutrition side. We obviously can't spend too much time on it today, but the there is a lot of good research there. And I'd be looking at replicating that more than what you would replicate on your usual three to four hour training ride or your race because it is far closer to an ultra ultra endurance event than it is to a usual bike race so and that's one aspect where you would need to modify your usual nutrition strategy um so basically the easiest way you're going to be improving your time is to just take weight off your bike that requires no training whatsoever and obviously every gram counts in this so this is where if you're going to be a weight weenie now's the time to do it the uci is not weighing your bike uh hell's 500 couldn't care less about your bike yeah weight. take off the front brake yeah. <laughs> you're not going to need it just, <laughs> just rip a mad skid at the bottom of each climb but there this is good this is where you get the y-foil bike out now yeah <laughs> The, Old truck Y-foils. The important thing I've listed here is to just triple check that your brakes work and that every bolt is right because if you have picked a climb that is straight and steep, you're going to be going pretty fast on these descents. I think I looked at Ronan's and he was at 110k an hour on the max oh, speed on the descent geez. and like mine was 85. But you're doing if you're doing 80, 90k an hour, uh, after nine hours of riding like you that's a, another thing you want to be confident that you can do that and that's where a support crew comes into it to actually have that independent analysis of if you're fit to still be riding i know my friend who took a few more hours and he was completing his in the dark he got he got the king of the mountains for the descent segment in the dark this was after 16 oh, hours no. but um <laughs> He's right. just wanted to get it done with. Yeah, well, it was his last. He was his second last time down, and this I definitely wouldn't recommend this to anyone. But his thought then he was that cooked that he going through his mind was if I crash, at least I don't have to ride up it again. So that <laughs> that's <laughs> that's where. So ideally, so maybe the support crew should be bringing a full face helmet along as well. Yeah, <laughs> ideally, the you have a support crew checking in to make sure that kind of thing isn't going through someone's head because that's obviously not what you want uh during but but pretty uh pretty awesome 17 year old brain there yeah as well. exactly <laughs> but also his other rationale was well it was safer to send faster then because you can see if a car's coming because of the lights so you could just hammer all the blind corners because well it's why i speed on the road you know so i'm on the road less <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. Just safer. That's, that's the rationale. <laughs> yeah, that, much safer. But yeah, with uh, still with bike prep, you would be looking at your gear ratios as well. That's definitely something I wish I had have changed. I think I had the thirty nine twenty five on, which you're mm. a, you're a pussy if you had anything more than that. This was even just it sounds like I'm a, a back in my day rider now, but this is <laughs> seven years ago now. Whereas I would just be pulling out all the stops trying to get a thirty four front tooth. Uh, front chain ring and a 32 back and and go for the steepest climb i can um obviously you're gonna have to assess how much money you want to spend because it's sort of a a bottomless pit in terms of of uh dollars per gram saved once you start getting right down there but this is going to depend on the athlete and and how much they're willing to invest i'm wondering if you the quick and dirty way would just be a light gravel bike with a one by yeah uh or just straight up take the front derailleur and one of the chain rings off your <laughs> off your road bike and just uh sounds messy yeah it does um that would be <laughs> quick and dirty there uh mm. and then very dirty <laughs> lots of grease so <laughs> we're moving to on the day now so these are the the last things that you have to be thinking about on the day so your pacing strategy uh, are you planning on including stops? And if you have that strategy in your head, then it's going to be something you can rely on as you're going through. So that's going to be what kind of power you're looking to hold for each climb. And important thing to note there is if you really want to be riding to power too much, because it can be pretty fatiguing if you know you're going to be out there the whole day to be staring at your Garmin and making sure you're holding the right wattage. So for some athletes, it might be a mixture of by feel, a mixture of putting the Garmin in the back pocket so they can just forget and just ride for a bit. And then a, okay, now I need some motivation to keep going. I'm going to now look at the numbers as I go up and make sure that I'm on track for what I'm planning on. So this is, it is going to depend on the rider here. Um, Some may be perfectly comfortable with staring at the computer for the whole day, but for others yeah they might prefer to ride on feel and you will get a, you will have a good feel after the training and if you've done some trial runs of what kind of power feels what that target power feels like as you're riding up the climb mm-hmm. and then with the would, what about yeah. battery Batter, yeah I, mean, I think battery life yeah did you have any issues with battery life with yours or no i had a garmin depends on how long people are going to be out there garmin 500 so uh that was i don't think my garmin would i don't think my garmin would last that long yeah my mine definitely wouldn't now so that's something you (laughs) you have to take into account as well is just having a charger there ready to go or the multiple device job which is just going to be a hassle to splice together at the end but can be done and has been done before but yeah definitely something worth taking into account you don't want to be eight hours in and go oops can't ride anymore yeah exactly the the joke that if it's not on strava it never happened really does yeah well that's hold is, true here that's doesn't how it? They, how they validate but if it's part it, of the rules here yeah, yeah. it actually yeah. didn't happen yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you exactly. can't you can't just say no trust me i did do the whole thing <laughs> it doesn't doesn't work like that um, and then also the stop strategy. So my climb that I did, I had to do 27 repetitions and we agreed that each after each three, we were going to chill out for a bit at the bottom, have something to eat. 
Um, and it's, yeah, important to think about whether you're going to have the food on you or stop at the bottom to eat it because that's going to also affect the weight that you're carrying up the climb each time. So it may be more efficient to stop for 20 seconds to have a bite to eat and something to drink at the bottom of the climb than it is to carry it with you up and down the climb. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there you can you can get right into the calculations there if you want to or a lot of it's going to depend on preference and then also just whether you want your your pockets full or whether you're just yeah happy to stop for a bit at the bottom ideally a support crew there like in the ideal world you have someone there that can pass you a bit in each time at the bottom that you you drink for a mm-hmm. few seconds as you're rolling up and then toss it and then a bar or yep. whatever you choose to eat and someone passing you food at the top yep <laughs> yeah yep. so Food, the roll down. Yeah, food at the top and then you can roll down and eat it and drink at the top mm-hmm. and then um, yeah, toss it at the bottom and then they can come down and pick it up and drive it back up. Not everyone is going to have a support crew that is um, like this. And Your dad was there, Cyrus, I imagine? No, he, he wasn't. He just thought we were idiots. We um, had to <laughs> – We no, the first six hours was just us and then uh, – We'd, we'd told everyone we were going to do it and I think one person came out and every, everyone from the local club, um, we're both from a, a small country cycling club, Warrigal Cycling Club, and there's always the good community aspect there and they basically, when we put out the Facebook post a few days before, said, nah, you guys are idiots, no chance. And, um, <laughs> and then, wasn't cool enough yet. Then, yeah, right? exactly. And then after around six hours, I think someone was riding past the hill and went, oh, geez, these guys are still going. And then, yeah, they said, oh, where are you at? And said just <laughs> past halfway. And then they sort of started rounding up a few more people. And then so by the last few hours, we, we actually had five or six people out. The whole town was <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah. Five you were or out six, there making some stone soup. Five or six was the, the whole town. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's I think where the donuts came from because at the time we just had the bananas and sultanas. We'd gone full durian rider on the nutrition. But the, <laughs> yeah, the, we got some extra supplies and then some new people to ride with as well because we had people – then coming out there and just saying, oh, I'll do a, a few repeats with you. But that kind of thing is going to be hugely beneficial. And I know a mm-hmm. lot of people that uh, I've seen doing Everestings will spread the word out and say, hey, can you come out at any point? Because just someone to ride with here or there, even if you can't talk by that stage, it's just going to be really good for morale and, and yeah, someone to give you something that tastes a bit different, a bit of pizza mm-hmm. or or something that you might not have planned on and and you suddenly need like any any part for your bike if you've got a support crew there that's going to be super beneficial because if you have to drive off and get something during the effort that's going to be a huge waste of time sounds like a good excuse to not have a your phone on you for a day yeah I get, you wouldn't have to respond to any emails for the day i don't think yeah and it's weight it's extra weight you don't want to you don't so yeah Ditch the phone. Yeah. Sounds great. Completely, completely off grid there. And then <laughs> the the other thing is, yeah, to bring out uh, a spare, as many spare parts as you can because if you're going to go to all this effort and, and get the majority of the way through the Everesting and then all of a sudden you your tire blows out, uh, you, mm-hmm. you want to have some stuff there to to replace that. So ideally if yeah, you can even just have your 
spare rubbish mountain bike or something there in case you're close and you you want to finish it and yeah be able to support yourself as much as you can or have your support crew there ready to go that's going to be uh super important because if you're investing eight hours or you've invested eight hours already it's not something you can just go i'll just do it next week instead that's going to be pretty demoralizing by that point um but yeah that's that's all I've got there in my notes on how you would prepare and complete an Everesting. Do you guys have any anything you'd like to add from there? Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, it was actually a really good uh, talk there because I, I, I haven't had an athlete approach me yet. Any of my athletes haven't really thought about or talked about doing this. Um, one of my former athletes, uh, Jethro, he I don't, he was talking about doing it and he had a day set and I can't remember if he ended up doing it or not, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how this trend goes. You know, yeah. it's definitely, it's going to be around for a while, I think. Yeah. Well, the beauty is anyone can do it and can be done mm-hmm. anywhere. It's something that's relatable because, yeah, you look at a, the Tour de France and it's hard for someone sitting on their couch at home to sort of compare, oh, what, what would I have to do? How how much could I do of this? Whereas this, they can look at Alberto Contador's ride, Lachlan Morton, also former world record holder, and now um, Rona McLaughlin and think, okay, they did in that time. I can go out and actually do this and see what the difference is between me and them. So I think that's really attractive to, to people at home that want to give it a go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to like about it. Instead of doing some ultra on some sketchy road over a really long distance or whatever, it is pretty safe and easy. Yeah, and, and low cost. Somewhere. You can literally just go to your nearest climb if you want to. Ideally, you yeah pick pick one that's suitable. But if if I'm here in Belgium in a super flat area, I can just go to the bridge up the road and and ride up and down the bridge for the whole day and yeah get to the height of Everest. So and so Damien is is it. I was gonna say, Damien, is it on, is it on your bucket list? Are you thinking about uh, it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say, um, where would you do it? Because there's no hills in this entire country. Yeah. Uh, the highest place to ride is probably a car park. Ah, uh, yeah. So I would be riding up and down a car park all day. Yeah, I wonder how you go with that um, with the but, yeah GPS too. But it's not. Uh, no, it's not on my list. I don't like ultra stuff. <laughs> hmm. Um. And I've coached one person that's done it and they just said, oh, I'm going to do it next week and they did it. Yeah. So I didn't, we didn't even prepare. <laughs> yeah. They just, well, they just that it. is the beauty of it. The This is, it is something that, as I said before, you can do without the preparation. This is, this podcast here is just all the things that will make it easier for you and things that you can include to, to better your time if you've done it before and go right now, I want to actually try and do a good time on it. That's these are things you can take into account to try and get the best out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Sounds like a good end to the show there. Um, if you guys don't have anything else to add, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. Thanks to Cyrus and Damien for joining me today. And um, you can find when we release episodes by following our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram accounts. We are on Twitter uh, at Cycling Club Pod, and we're on Instagram with uh, at Cycling Performance Club, and on Facebook we're the Cycling Performance Club. And um, we're hoping to have some guests coming up here in the near future, and we will 
be able to get back to people joining us in the audience here on the Riverside app as soon as we get all that technical uh, good stuff worked out. <laughs> all right. Anyways, we'll send it there, guys. See you guys later. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks. Bye.